Rethinking Leadership podcast. I'm Jude Jennison, founder of Leaders by Nature, and in this podcast, I interview leaders on their experiences of leading change, the challenges they faced, and how they overcame them. I'm interested in exploring how we lead disruptive change in a way that has a positive benefit for employees, business, and society. In other words, how do we be more human and relational in our leadership and make a difference? This week's guest has some great tips on leading teams in a more collaborative and relational way. More on that in a moment, but if you'd like more information on leading teams through fast-paced change, you can download a report from my website at www.jude.team. Tony Langham is the Executive Chair and Co-Founder of Lansons, a reputation management and public relations firm based in London and New York. We discuss the importance of approaching reputation management as the way people perceive each other and companies. With the increased focus on ESG, Tony explains how companies need to change their behaviour to stay more relevant. We also discuss anti-racism, balancing tension with comfort and so much more. Have a listen. Hi Tony, thanks for joining me today. Hi, thanks Jude. Good, Good morning. Can you tell us who you are and what you do please? Yes, I'm Tony Langham. I'm chief. Of, already wrong. I'm, I'm I'm recently executive chair of Lanson's reputation management and public relations firm, and then one day a week I have a non-executive career where I'm chair of Great British Racing and British Champion Series in horse racing and research company Opinion Research. Excellent. And I know that you've recently transitioned from CEO to executive chair of Lanson's. How did that how did that change come about and how have you found it? It came about because we, we started our business in 1989, and that's Claire Parsons and I, and, and the, latterly Claire's been chair and I was chief executive for, for a long period. Um, we have a business that's got 30 partners, so we owned a majority, but 28 people owned, owned part of that business. And it was just we just knew that we wanted to deliver a succession as we got older that was I mean, clearly it was in our interest, but also was in everyone's interest and the firm's longer term interests. And so we, we decided on, it, it was the time, and although, although I sort of feel I could have been chief executive for longer, we decided we wanted to, to, to hand over when we found the right person and when the business was on the up. And it sounds strange to say, but during COVID, the business has done very well. Um, and we found the perfect person in Gordon Tempest Hay who previously run probably the two most successful independent agencies in our field, um, latterly Blue Rubicon going into Teneo, um, and we made a match. So it was the right time and, and it was in everyone's interest. And was it, has it been difficult? And I know, I know you're still in the transition because you're, you're fairly new, aren't you, in the last month of, mm. of transitioning. Are you finding it, how are you finding it? Are you finding it easy to let go or are you finding you wanting to hang on kicking and screaming? Um, it's a bit too early to say it's not easy because Mm. I mean the easy bit is is I'm tend towards what used to be called a control freak which means that I can control things or I can abdicate things and and accept that I have no responsibility for things so I'm I'm quite a total responsibility or no responsibility Mm. and that will be easy it just in this particular phase is not that yet because because although Gordon's chief executive, he's been there a few weeks. Mm. It clearly doesn't have the the background of the last few years. So mm. so I still have to be involved in 
management board emails, weekly management board meetings because of my history. And that won't be the case probably three or four months from now. So it's, it's not easy um, in that world of not being responsible, but also still being involved because I, I prefer being clean. But, but I concentrate on my client work because that's what I love about what, about what I do. So tell me, tell me a bit about the client work. What, what is it that you love about it? Well, it's it, a joy if you're in a consultancy or agency is that you see lots of different businesses. So I, I think of it as, as if I work for five or six companies as well once rather than I work for Lancers and their clients. I always feel as if I'm involved in them. So that's a joy in itself because there's no such thing, I don't think, as a boring organisation. Every organisation's been, been interesting. I'm lucky enough to only work for organisations that I want to work for. So I didn't choose all of them because obviously they chose me and us. Um, but but I chose not to say no to them. So so it is. A, I work with a set of organisations I like. And the last few years, I've advised a country in the Isle of Man, um, companies in different fields, like a company in the steel steel manufacturer field. I've been to steel mills, um, got to know their way of working, and then I've had some financial services and professional services clients. So it's 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 uh, you know variety, as they used to say. What have been some of the biggest challenges that you faced? In terms of clients, mm. or as a leader, in terms of clients, um, I think the last few years working with the, the Isle of Man, there's a, it's been convenient for, for financial centres like um, London and New York um, to, help, to help sort of support the myth that there are things called tax havens where bad things happen. And in their centres, they're largely wonderful and no bad things happen. Whereas the truth is nothing like that at all. Um, we live in a global world where things that are not so good happen everywhere. Um, and people people pay or don't pay tax in all sorts of different locations. So I think the world's a lot greyer um, mm-hmm. than in reality than it, than it seems. And it's convenient. And media have tend to support this convenience that is black and white. So, so working... To help maintain an economy in in, in offshore centres has, has been really exciting and interesting. Um, and then I work, and then I tend to I like to work with companies that have communication issues attached to behaviour issues to, to, to help them survive or succeed. Um, so I currently work with a company called Amigo Loans, which has a significant set of problems. And, and in my career, I've I've done that quite a few times. Lance has worked with a corporate bank um, when he went through a period of um, finding 1.5 billion pounds wasn't there, and the chairman was on the front page of all newspapers as a as the Crystal Methodist. We we worked with them for 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 eight years to to, to help be part of the team that recovered that business. Mm-hmm. So it's those kind of situations I I really like. And then of course launching new companies and growing new companies um, is is also brilliant. So tell me tell me you say you like working with um, changing of behaviour. Tell tell me more about that. What are some of the behaviours that um, have led people to to need to reach out to you, and, um, and what is it that you help them change? So, I, I I think that what I do is help manage reputation. But the way that reputation management is used in our world, it seems to mean that it's a negative word that that kind of lawyers do when you stop people saying things. I don't see it like that at all. Mm. Um, I see reputation management as something that we all do as individuals and all organisations need to do. Um, to, to make the best of our of ourselves and, and reputation is based on others perception of you but but it's how they perceive obviously 
what you do so you you can't have a great reputation unless you produce something great so rolex and lego tend to be the companies with amongst the companies with the highest reputation if they if rolex didn't make fantastic watches they couldn't have a fantastic reputation but that's not enough in itself to deliver mm-hmm. a reputation the other things are how they communicate but particularly how they behave um and 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 behaviors becoming crucial obviously now whether whether organizations are um, doing the right thing in situations and situations arise all the time and that could be in the sense of sustainability it could be in how they relate with their own society in terms of diversity it could be whether they do or don't pay the taxes that are due um, those kind of behaviors um, are, are, what, are what underpin a reputation and organizations tend to need a north star which um, we tend to characterize as purpose although it's a bit overused word at the moment but 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 purpose is 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 underpins everything and i think helping organizations develop that but also calling out when they haven't lived by their own their own supposed standards and purpose is something that outside advisors have to do i think to be to be any use and have you found that in the process of doing doing the reputation management for other clients have you found that your um implementing the same things same practices in your own organization in terms of you know whether it's communication whether it's diversity and inclusion whether it's esg are you are you finding um that it's it's making you do a a a deeper look at your own organization yeah i think it came the other way around actually i think Mm -hmm. i think we we did that anyway claire and i set up the business in 1989 with a we, we, we didn't use the terms that we would use now, like purpose and, and intentional and all those words that, that, that people use. But we we had a set of things we believed in, um, as in um, organisations are better if they're owned by more of the people that work in them and not just um, a founder or two. Um, we always had a company that was, as it was by chance, but it was a company run by a man and a woman. Um, that was majority women, but then it was majority women in terms of owning the equity in the firm. Um, and, and since we voluntarily monitor it, we, we have a low gender pay gap. It's about 5%. Um, so we, we naturally don't have a gender pay gap um, rather than we had, to, we had to think about having it. So I think it came from, um, and, and, we were, um, and we, we've been carbon neutral since 2009. So, so a, a long time before you kind of had to be as a firm in an office. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, I think we believed in a set of things, which which I'd say is a, something around responsible capitalism and sustainability, but sustainability of everything. Um, so what what inspired you to set the business up? Because because you you've been running for what thirty years or more, and yeah, thirty three now, yeah, yeah. So thirty three years ago, when people people were talking a little bit about sustainability and climate change, but not in the same way that they are at the moment. What inspired you at the time to be, because effectively you're ahead of your curve, aren't you? 33 years ago, you, what well, inspired you at the time? Well, um, it, I mean, a lot, a lot of a mix of things. I think, I think for me personally, um, I'm, I'm, I'm probably a better boss than I am employee. So that 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 helps. I mean, a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs um, are happier having responsibility than working for someone else who has responsibility. I'd definitely be in that camp. So, um, and I think doing things our way is something we always did. But it's a luxury 
to talk about diversity, sustainability, and things. If, if you have a, if you have a new business, isn't it? You you have to have a profitable business first. Um, so as young people, because I was in my late twenties, um, we focused on a sector. We focused on financial services initially, and we focused on companies that were that wanted young people helping to spread their message. So we focused on the the things that were in vogue at the time, actually, which was which tended to be around mortgages for everyone because that was the age of even though inflation was high with a kind of juxtaposition incredibly cheap mortgages relative to salary unlike now so in that period almost everyone in financial professional services world and actually throughout the country had access to a mortgage in there by their mid-20s and so mortgages were being sold by all sorts of organizations and there were lots of um, deregulation about investment and pensions so we we made a business in the areas where we had where we could at the time and then I think we out of, we always did things what we thought was the right way. But out of that, we built a, a, our set of beliefs. I think, but I I would never um, I, w- I would never argue um, the beliefs can can come before the the finance because they at least have to be level with it. Mm. And how have you how have you evolved over the years? Yeah, um, well, you decide. Don't I think you decide? Um, I think if you're reasonably good and can win business in that kind of world you should probably be able to get to so there's two of you that can both do that and you and you're working full-time you probably should be able to get to 10 15 clients 10 15 people that should be reachable assuming assuming that situation and then you have a set of decisions after that whether you want a lifestyle business or to grow a bigger business and, and we wanted to grow a bigger business so um so then we then we then I think the stages are in people businesses probably getting to 10 or 15 is a stage probably getting to 50 is a stage and probably getting to 100 is a is a stage and then and I think 150 and 200 as well um it, you you each you have to you you have to bring in bigger company sets of behaviors and systems and attitudes and specialists in each of those steps I think and then we decided that's what we wanted but equally we're quite idiosyncratic. I think getting it to 100 people was the limit for our way of doing things. And that's another reason for this succession. And also bringing in a person that's built businesses to 200 people and beyond probably is something that it, within me as chief exec, probably London, 90 people, New York, 10 people. That was probably where I would get a business to, I think, with the way that I want to do things and how much time I want to give to it and how much client work I want to do. Yeah, and and I think it takes a certain humility, doesn't it, to accept that and to recognise that somebody else can then take it to another to another level. How have how have you had to evolve as a leader in the process of going from the two of you to a hundred people? Um, a lot, I think. Um, I mean, I was a child. I, I think I think it's possible to be. I think it's possible to 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 certainly be a man and never become an adult, isn't it? Um, so I think I became an adult probably sometime around 40. Um, and then I've, I think I'm quite a reasonable adult since 40. Um, but but, but, uh, but, I, but I, I, I think I was, I was much more, um, I was much more work hard. Everyone must work hard, um, focused, building a team that was very focused in the first phases of the company. Um, I sound completely different now. I, I recognise that sustainability comes from having a balance in everything. I think you, ha- you, you have to have a balance of, let's say, adrenaline in the firm, 
and there has to be a, a level of tension. But equally, there has to be a level of comfort. I think if a firm's got too much tension, it it it, it can work, but it tends to burn people out, and it's a horrible place to be. Um, if a firm's too comfortable, it obviously doesn't really succeed. So, and and I think you're never in the perfect place of balancing comfort and tension adrenaline but you you veer between slightly too much of one and slightly too much of the other and I've come to understand that I've also come to understand that um I mean I've tend to, tended to describe the perfect culture that I hope we've created as a, as a woke wonderland because I, I think the word woke and he's reclaiming it's a wonderful word um I think a woke wonderland is the best term for the culture you need because you want all sorts of different people different ages, different types of people, different backgrounds of wealth, and obviously um, different ethnicities in a business to make the best decisions and, and create the best culture. Um, and you reach a stage where I think with most most companies in London, obviously I have to talk about London for me, most companies in London, um, the, the, the privileged white men um, know the score and the rules and how things are so you're always talking i think for the people who aren't the privileged white men and you learn you learn that like going back to the office is a great case and it's not nothing to do with ethnicity but going back to the office now um the people that want to go back to the office i find across businesses are very noisy so it's easy if you want to be a leader and think everyone wants to go back to the office that's really easy to do but mm. you know you, well I, you, I know it's not true Mm. Um, because I, I do surveys and I talk to other people. I know that we have 10 or 15 people who don't really want to go back to the office much at all and, and have concerns about that. And as a leader, in my latter sort of weekly, when, in my last days as chief executive, I did a fortnightly call to everybody. It was weekly, went fortnightly during lockdown. Um, I would talk to the, to the people that have concerns about coming back to the office and say that we were with them because they're the people who need, they're the people who need to know the company understands them not the people that want to rush back to the office. So I think I think probably my biggest progression is to is to learn who to talk to as a leader and and how everything needs to be kept in balance to be sustainable and and when interventions are necessary. You obviously hopefully you get better. I think companies function often without the leader. I mean lots of mm. you know it's why some elements of chief executive pay is laughable because lots of lots of large companies would function during a person's tenure whatever they did um there's just key times when you need to intervene and, and key decisions that matter i think and what i'm hearing from that is that real real balance that is needed to create that inclusive culture that that balance between um listening and hearing all of the voices and including them and then also needing to make a decision because we also know that when you include every every voice and you've got everybody with a different opinion, if you're not careful, you get analysis paralysis. So what I'm hearing from you talking is that real desire to include all the voices, but then actually be really clear about here's a stake in the ground. This is a decision we need to go with, but to continue to listen and be willing to flex around it. Is that is that a fair representation of what? Yeah, it is, it, it, is a, it is a fair representation. I, I would have been. As the chief executive, I was, a, I think I was a directional chief executive in that I would, you know, I would try and do as much listening as I could, but I would want the firm to have a vision, a purpose. You would want people to share and buy into that. Um, I think um, some things sort of only the leader feels confident to do, don't they? I mean, if you, if, you know, 
whether you will or won't work for a certain so in our business whether you do will or won't work for a, a particular organization is a really big subject because you don't want to work for organizations that that you don't want to work for commercially you don't want to work for organizations that reflect badly on you but for us we've always had it as a rule that you don't have to work on a client if you don't want to either because the client's behavior or our team or what the client does you don't you you could you you have a choice about uh, the clients that you that you that you work on so those sort of situations if we work for a, for an organization that not everyone agrees with but we work for them and then you get questioned by you know, an outside organization like a newspaper about why you're doing that, then the then I think leaders have to step up and do those kind of things. Mm. Um, equally, as you know, there's times when you in a business when you have to make decisions. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, things like casting votes and things, but I don't think we ever had votes in our company. But but I would say I was a directional leader as well. But yes, so trying to listen. But but I do, certainly for companies, I think leaders are hugely important for, for, for probably for all organisations, but massively important for organisations of less than 100 people. Mm. And you, you've featured in the Great Places to Work. What, mm. what do you think it is about your organisation that makes you a good fit for that list? Yeah, well, we know, actually, because, because we get lists of so only, only great places to work try and get into great places to work so it's, it's that's why i really like it so the reason we do it is that there's a very extensive um, staff survey and the the results of our we see our staff's views versus the average of the other great companies so so you compare yourself with companies that think they're great so mm -hmm. we know that um we score higher than other companies on giving back to society um believing in what we do having pride in where we work um being an organization that um would only make people redundant as a last resort um we score highly on those things we score less high on it, it although better this year actually or at the end of last year um we have scored slightly lower on overall rewards remuneration because um it's a competitive world and lots of Lots of people who do what we do compare um, their salaries to, say, banks and financial services companies, which pay their highest and uh, investment companies. So, so we we have done less on less well on that, and also work-life balance. Consultancies have, um, it, and I think it's common to lots, have tended to do less well on that because as the news cycle um, and and certainly the demands of clients have sort of gone a bit twenty-four-seven. Um, you can't really do our job at a senior level and never be disturbed on a Saturday or a Sunday or a holiday. Mm. Although, although we put in place blocks to make sure those things happen. But, 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 but the work-life work -life balance is, is a huge issue for all consultancies, I think. So how do, how do you balance that? Because you say you're, you're, mm. you've got more women than you've got men in the organisation. Mm. Um, so how do, you, how do you balance that work-life balance with gender and I know, I know it's not specific just to women but often women are the ones who pick up more of the childcare than men historically although I think that's changing that's starting mm. to change now how do you how do you encourage um a, a balanced gender where with a with a work-life balance and also how do you encourage younger people to join because I think they particularly are um I think you know when I joined the workplace we were grateful for a job I think yeah 
I yeah, me too. Yeah. Younger people now are much more clear about what they're saying yes and no to, and and much more clear yeah. about the need for flexible working and and work life mm. balance. How do you how do you make sure that you continue to be relevant? Yeah, I agree. It's a good question. Um, flexibility, um, we're we're absolutely there in the sense of, um, I mean, currently. We, we opened the office again on Thursday because we follow government guidance and people, you know, we, we'd like people to go in every week, but but whether you go in between one and five days is up to you. Obviously, you need to, to meet your, your, your clients' needs. I think the secret for us, and I think it's the secret for all organisations, is um, I think if you have 10,000 employees, rules matter massively. If you have 100 it's not really your policies that matter, it's how you interpret individual situations that matter. I mean, I think our policies and rules are fine. I don't think they would be, that they, they, they wouldn't seem to be the most enlightened, but, it, but it's how you interpret those in individual situations. It's whether, I think where we have scored is, um, I mean, we've never taken, for instance, you know, going to parent teacher days or your kids in school matches. I mean, you know, you've never had to take holiday in our company to, to mm -hmm. go to those things. That's always been, you just go to those things. Um, you know, someone's coming back to work and, you know, they need to drop their, their child off in the morning or pick them up in the afternoon. We've never, you know, we've never, that's always been fine. And that's never had to be holiday to do that. Um, although obviously colleagues like to know and, and so it needs to be explicit because colleagues, obviously, if you work in teams, want to know each other's availability. So I, I think our secret has been how we've been interpreted, how we've interpreted things. Um, and it's, it's um, you know, if someone, I mean, let's say someone is, is let's say someone is ill for three or four weeks. Um, I mean, there may be situations where, where we would have enforced the law, but we never actually have. So we've always paid people in full. There hasn't been a person. There hasn't been a person saying your money might stop to someone who's even you know people who've been seriously ill for one two years. You know we, we've continued to pay. I think those those situations and belief in those situations are what are what actually matter when you work in an organisation because because anyone's rules. On things like sick pay or those things, they, they go from reasonable to draconian. It's about interpretation, and I think that's been our in our secret with young people. Though, um, well, they read about us and they read our website, and we're the same with with people of colour, where we've had big success in recruiting in the last twelve months. Um, we 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 want to show what kind of business we are, um, and you know, I'm thoroughly bought into you know, take the, the, the race, the racism issue. It's, it's not, it's not enough not to be racist. You have to be anti-racist mm. um, and you have to show, and if you're a leader, I think a chief executive has to show that they're anti-racist and support anti-racist causes and, and say, and either talk about, I don't believe in personal attacks, but, but support anti, uh, anti-racist. And, and, um, and it's, you know, if you're a, if you're a white, if you're an older white man, I think it's it's for me to say that the world that the world is a world of white supremacy um, and white privilege is real. I, I shouldn't leave it to a to a to a black person who works for Lansons to have to say that. It's mm -hmm. for the white man to say that. So I, I think um, I think that's how that's how we've that's how it's, it's worked for us. It's 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 that 
it's the knowing, it's the rooted values of the organisation and how we interpret rules in individual situations and the knowledge of how we will do that among everyone else that makes the difference. I think there's there's something here around um, that, and again, it's about the evolution of the of the business and and what I'm hearing is you're continually adapting and and evolving as a leader as well as 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 a business, and and I think that that's more relevant today than ever before because I think the world is changing quite fast and technology is driving rapid change and then the social media is making everything much more public. Do you think that um, it's getting harder as a white, as an older white male, to be relevant in in a world where there there is much more talk about gender and ethnicity um, and sexuality? Do you think that's harder for you? Um, no, not at all. I think it's it's, uh, it's really really exciting. I mean, obviously, there's some truisms, aren't there? There's some which you know I do I do know people that moan all of the time. Clearly you know which is a good thing clearly compared to the white the white man of 60 who'd been in the professional services and finance world um would uh, 30 years ago will get more non-executive jobs than the than the white man of 60 today but that's because they got all of the jobs yeah. so, so it's really good that they don't get them so that's the joy surely um i mean there's no there's no there's no other way of looking at it than than you know for white privilege to go. It means some white people will earn less, not 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 go as far in their careers, um, and not have as much privilege as in the past. And that's fantastic. That's exactly what needs to happen. Um, and some women and people of colour will, will do a lot better than they would have done 30 years ago. And that's fantastic. Um, no, I, I love all of that. I don't. I, and the reason I don't think it's hard though is um, it's. It's about who has to change, isn't it? And who has to change are the the white people that run things. So there's an opportunity for white people that run things to be one of the people that says things need to change. Um, so I, I think the relevance comes in that because because if you're if you're part of the group that needs to change, you have a choice of of fighting the change. Or, or, or championing the change. And the only right thing to do is to champion the change. So I think the world needs older white men to do that because, mm. because, that, because it, they, that group still has a lot of power and privilege. Yeah. What's the, what's the biggest change that is ahead of you as you're transitioning into executive chair? Um, well, um, <laughs> It hasn't happened yet, but the, the the three to four hours a day I spent running the business, um, I, 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 my average day was about 11 hours, and I'd spent three to four running the business, I think, from a, looking at my time. Um, and that would just be constantly making decisions, directing people, intervening, checking things, you know, the, you know, it, if our it, uh, if our turnover was was too high, looking at white people, I mean, I've, I've always exit interviewed everyone that's ever left our business. So all the the six hundred people that have left Lansons, I've asked them why they left and spent uh, an hour to two hours with them um, before they leave. And just as I say hello to the six hundred people that have joined us, um, uh, whoever, whenever anyone joins. Um, so those, uh, and I've I've still been involved in. You know, two rounds of twenty um, people reviews a year, uh, and and I won't be anymore. So that those 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 that huge amount of time involved in 
the the mechanics day-to-day mechanics of running a people business um i is the biggest change mm. um and it was time for me to to change mm. and i'm and i i will miss it but then i'll but then i look forward to it as well and final question for you what would your advice be for anybody either starting a business or growing a business oh i don't know i mean i i think it's really lonely having a business um i mean and it, it running a business you you know it's i think it's, it tends to be false for 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 people to think that for chief executives to think that all the people around them are their friends or um it's very difficult for that to be the case so i i like partnership businesses so whether in my case it was with one other person who was also my life partner um and we managed to still be together 33 years on of having the business um, which is a massive so, achievement in itself isn't it yeah. well, it's not bad um, um I, th- I think that I, I i mean i would have i'm i'm glad i did it with someone else and then our partnership model i think i think you could extend that to to, to a core team of people but I, th- I think i think um you need somebody you need someone to tell you when you're an idiot um if you're chief executive and when you're wrong so it's very hard to find that from someone who's reporting to you. So you need that from somebody. Um, so I, 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 where are you going to get that from? So, you know, people have coaches and mentors, life partners and other people or have chairs to chief execs. But, but everyone needs someone to, to tell them when they're an idiot. And I think that's, that's key. But apart from that, I would just go for it and keep, keep it simple. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we've talked about lots of things and I wouldn't agonise over... I mean, purpose, I mean, it's purpose doesn't have to necessarily be a societal purpose in a business. You know, a business can exist, um, you know, to to make the the finest watches sustainably in the whole world can be a a purpose or or to provide the best possible advice on um, to be the best possible accountant for companies in the food and retailing sector. You know, that can be your purpose. And I would I would have a simple, clear purpose and and. You know, and I suppose to be honest about the commerciality. Um, I mean, I know I know we're supposed to talk people, profit, planet, and try and not say the word capitalism, but obviously our system is capitalist, um, and I've never hidden from that. I mean, I hope I'm a responsible capitalist, but um, but that is our system. So I I think be open about the finances of the business. Um, but then also be open about where the profits go. And I think I think for me, transparency is, has been a fantastic thing in the business. Having 32 partners that see all the finances means, you know, may as well tell everybody because there's only there's only 100 people in the business. So mm-hmm. 32 people know all the numbers, so tell them all. So mm-hmm. I, I've never had any problem about we're doing well, we're not doing so well, we've won this business, we've lost that business. Um, so I, I found transparency to be a brilliant thing. So I would go simplicity, transparency, have a partner, um, but but really go for the commerciality as well and, and not be shy about that. Brilliant. Tony, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. No, thanks for asking me, Jude. Uh, thank you. I love Tony's explanation of balancing adrenaline and tension with comfort in order to create change and engage employees, including yourself, without leading to chaos and burnout. I think that's a delicate balance that many organisations and leaders are grappling with today. It's also good to hear a white male championing anti-racism and understanding the changes in behaviour that are required to do so. After 33 years of leading a business and a team, 
Tony really understands what makes people tick and goes the extra mile to make his organisation one of the UK's great places to work. Where do you need to find more balance? And what changes in your behaviour would make your team or organisation a great place to work? I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. Please share it with someone else so we can collectively inspire each other to rethink leadership in the world. If you'd like more information on leading teams through fast-paced change, you can download a report from www.jude.team. That's it for this week. I was your host, Jude Jennison, founder of Leaders by Nature. Until next week, keep leading and I'll be back soon with another interview on Rethinking Leadership.